Welcome to a Pulp Event Podcast, brought to you by the PulpNet, your link to the online world of the Pulp Magazines for over 25 years. Learn more about the Pulp Magazines through articles, blogs, bibliographies, links, over 100 episodes of this podcast, and much more, at thepulp.net. In this Pulp Event Podcast, Nicholas Parisi discusses the sports stories of Rod Serling. Nicholas is the author of Rod Serling, His Life, Work, and Imagination, and is president of the Rod Serling Memorial Foundation. The presentation was part of a celebration of a centennial of the sports pulps. This podcast was recorded on August 4th at Pulp Fest 2023 in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. When Mike asked me to do this, uh, the sports stories of Rod Serling, I thought it was an interesting idea uh, because I don't think sports stories are the first thing you think of when you think of Rod Serling. Uh, but he did write a good number of sports stories. Um, in case you're wondering, this is I was just I just got silly with this. This is a baseball card I put together. That's Rod swinging a wiffle bat, I think. And uh, and this is a list of his uh, major awards on the on the right side there. For the baseball card aficionados, it's a 1974 Topps design. And uh, the Binghamton Triplets, Rod Serling was born in Syracuse, New York, uh, Christmas Day, 1924. And he very shortly after the family moved to Binghamton, which is just south of, of Syracuse. And that's the, uh, the Binghamton Triplets was the um, a minor league team that, was, you know, that, that played in Binghamton at the time. So, uh, so I, I played around with that. But... So I guess it's probably a good idea just to talk a little bit about Rod Serling first, get put him in context, and to talk about what kind of stories he was writing. Uh, again, he was born in 1924, so he grew up in the 1930s, you know, the, uh, in the middle of, the, you know, through the Great Depression uh, in upstate New York. He uh, went to war the day after college, gra- the day after high school graduation. Uh, he enlisted in the Army, and he went to fight in the Philippines. Uh, and he saw some major combat in you know, the Pacific Theater, and he came back you know, a different person, as, as you can imagine. So, uh, but at that time, we're talking about you know, the 40s, the 50s, what were the two most popular sports in America, without a doubt, it's boxing and baseball. Uh, that was it. Football was barely on the, you know, on, the, on the scene as far as popularity went. Basketball, forget it, was way, way behind. I mean, wrestling was probably a third behind, behind those two. So, uh, you know, like any red-blooded American kid, he played baseball. And during uh, his military service, he boxed. He was a boxer uh, for his unit. He served with the 11th Airborne, 511th Parachute Infantry Regiment. And during, uh, you know, basic training, he boxed. And he won. He was, uh, at the time, he was what they called a catchweight, which I think is also known as a flyweight. When he joined the military, he was 5 feet, 5 inches tall, 118 pounds. And he was a little guy. And um, but he was known for having a berserker style of boxing. He was, uh, you know, he was a ball of energy his whole life, and he and he burned out way too soon, unfortunately. But he won his first 17 fights. He won 17 fights in a row, and then in his 18th fight, they put him up against somebody who was much bigger than him, and and, and demolished him. And uh, it broke his nose, and he said, "I think I've had enough of this boxing stuff." And uh, that was pretty much it. Yeah, so he was done with it. But so when he came back from the military. Uh, he enrolled at Antioch College in Yellow Springs, Ohio, and that's where he went to school. And he started writing. He started writing while he was in the military, but he really started writing when he was in college. And when he was in college, what did he write about? He wrote about the war and boxing. 
Those are the two main things that he wrote about when he came back. And uh, the first published fiction that he ever, you know, first fiction he ever published was in the Antiochian, which was the Antioch College Literary Magazine, and it was a boxing story called The Good Right Hand. So it was right from the beginning he was writing sports stories. Um, the Good Right Hand, and Serling would reference this story often over the course of his career because he considered this to be the genesis of Requiem for Heavyweight. Uh, if you read it, it doesn't really have all that much in common with Requiem for Heavyweight, um, other than being a boxing story, but it's about a, a boxer who injures his right hand and can, can't box anymore. And it's really, it's told from the point of view of his manager, who is remembering, uh, remembering him, and uh, he killed himself. The boxer killed himself because he felt he had lost his purpose in life. He couldn't box anymore, and that was it. And, and this concept... That concept of the the athlete, or really could be almost any any profession, but athletes particularly, uh, the athlete who can no longer be an athlete and has lost their purpose in life, who's past their prime, it's what I call in the book Rod Serling's obsolete men. They were people that came, they were the type of character Rod Serling revisited over and over and over again. The people who are trying to make sense of their life, their purpose in life, and Rod Sterling had a real affinity for boxers, particularly because he felt like he felt that boxers, you know, they they dedicate their entire life to this one pursuit. They everything is about the next fight. Everything's about getting ready for that fight. And then when you can't do it anymore, really through no fault of your own, through age, um, the, the sport discards you. It's you, you know, it's done with you. And what are you supposed to do then? So that idea of trying to figure out when you have all this life ahead of you and trying to figure out what am I now, what am I going to do now, was something that Rod Serling was fascinated by. Um, so it came up in boxing, it came up in baseball, it came up in the business world, um, and that's one of the main themes in Rod Serling's career. So from boxing, this is one of his earliest baseball stories. It's called O'Toole from Moscow. It was on something called Matinee Theater, and as you can see, it says 3 p.m., so it was, you know, it was a matinee. It was a, an afternoon show. Uh, Leo DeRocher, manager of the Cardinals, was, uh, was, was on it, was in it. This is actually, it's a comedy, and you know, Rod Sterling, again, is something else he's not known for is his comedies, um, and probably for good reason, but this is actually a pretty funny one. Um, this, unfortunately, the, there's no film of this. It doesn't exist, but I've read the script, and the script is pretty funny. It's about a... Russian embassy worker in New York who um, has been going AWOL. They, they keep losing this guy. Where is he going? And they find out he's been going to Ebbets Field every day. He's been going to the baseball games. And uh, he's fallen in love with baseball. He's a Russian and he's, you know, the American pastime. He's fallen in love with it. So he ends up having to kind of uh, go on the lam from, from New York and he just takes a train as far as he can go. And where does he end up? He ends up in Cincinnati. And Rod Sterling worked in Cincinnati. He went to school in Yellow Springs, Ohio. And then he worked uh, in Cincinnati radio and Cincinnati television. So there was this connection Rod Serling had with Cincinnati and the Cincinnati Reds. And so where would a, um, you know, a Russian go to play? He'd play for the Reds. You know? so, so that was, that was the, the, the brilliant concept behind that. And, uh, and I, I think it's pretty certain that where this came from, of course, this was 1954, I believe this, this aired. It might have been a little earlier, 53, 54. And during that time, you know, we're talking about the Red Scare, you know, we're talking about the, the, the Red Scare. And, and during that time, you may not know, but I happen to be a Cincinnati Reds fan, actually. And during that time, the Cincinnati Reds actually changed their name, officially changed their name from Reds to Red Legs, 
because the term Reds had such a such an evil connotation at the time that they actually changed the name to Red Lake. So I'm sure that's what uh, inspired this story about a Russian going to play for the Reds. Um, and yeah, it is, it is a pretty funny story. Um, just not too long ago, maybe about four, four or five years ago, a, a radio station in Cincinnati reproduced this, actually. And uh, Ann Serling, Rod's daughter, played the narrator, and, and they did a really, really uh, good job with it. Um, a, a Cincinnati sports writer, a friend of mine, actually um, uh, adapted it for, for the new radio production. So that was one of his early... Um, Baseball stories. Right, and not too long after this, another uh, baseball story he did was called um, "Old McDonald Had a Curve." It was another comedy, and this was on. Um, you know, I'm not even sure what what uh, that was on. What's what uh, might have been Craft Theater. I'm not positive, but um, that one exists. That that show exists, and actually, Rod com- included the script for it in one of his uh, script collection books and patterns. Uh, "Old McDonald Had a Curve" is in there. And that's another one that's somewhat along the lines of Rod's uh, obsolete men kind of stories. It's about a 67-year-old pitcher, uh, former pitcher, obviously, 67-year-old, who has a, he suffers an injury to his elbow, and he suddenly is able to throw these ridiculous curveballs because it's just this weird angle that his elbow is at. So he, so he ends up going back to pitch when he's 67 years old. Um, and it's, it's, it's a funny story that if you watch it now, and it's not available really anywhere, anywhere but if you watch it, it's the, the limitations of early television really kill it because they just couldn't, they couldn't reproduce a baseball so a, a stadium or a baseball field. It just looks ridiculous. Um, but that's, you know, so that, that was the next one before we get, of course, the Twilight Zone. And then the Twilight Zone, this is, this was the, you know, probably the most famous uh, sports story in the Twilight Zone, the mighty Casey. It's Robert Sorrells who actually did a bid for murder after this. Believe it or not, I think he's, I think he spent the rest of his life in, murder, in, in prison after this. Um, not, not immediately after this, but sometime after. Um, this was about a scientist who creates a robot pitcher, and he plays for the fictional Hoboken Zephyrs and who were in last place. And of course, when Casey comes along, he's a robot pitcher and he, he wins every game and they, they start winning. And the, the commissioner of baseball says, no, 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 you can't have a robot pitcher because the rules of baseball specifically say you have to have nine men, nine men on the field and he's not a man, so you have to get rid of him. So the, the option, the, um, the scientist who created them, the option he had was well, either to take him off the team or give him a heart. They, the commissioner said, if he has a heartbeat, then he's a man. So they gave him a heart, and what happens? He, he, with the heart, he becomes sentimental. He, 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 uh, he uh, develops sentimentality, and now he can't bear to strike anybody out. I can't, I can't bear to make him feel bad. And that was the end of his pitching career. So, so um, I think it's a pretty good episode. I mean, Rod's uh, comedies, again, they get a bit, uh, short shrift, but I, I think it's actually a pretty good episode. Um, the, uh, Jack Warden played the coach in this episode, and Jack Warden actually played the same role in uh, Old MacDonald Had a Curve. Old MacDonald Had a Curve, a lot of it is recycled into this episode. A lot of the dialogue is verbatim from that earlier script, and a couple of character names are exactly the same, including the, the, uh, the Jack Warden character. So uh, Rod was very adept at recycling his stuff. Um, he was almost certainly the most prolific writer in television history. I mean, he wrote about 250 scripts that were produced like, either on television, radio, or feature films. 
Um, but one of the reasons he was able to do that was because, yeah, he was very good at recycling things, um, you know, readapting them into different, you know, uh, expanding them from half an hour to an hour, cutting them from an hour to a half an hour, that kind of, that kind of thing. So he reused a lot of stuff. Um, but if you want to know, if you want uh, a taste of Rod's short, you know, short prose fiction, he did write this as a short story in one of the Twilight Zone story collections. Uh, Rod um, published three Twilight Zone short story collections while the show was airing. So he and he wrote these himself. These weren't ghost written or anything like that. Uh, after each season, he wrote a collection of Twilight Zone stories. So there's, there's three of them, and the Mighty Case is included in one of those. And it was also included in this this book, Baseball 3000, uh, Futuristic Baseball Stories. Rod's Twilight Zone short stories, uh, some of them are very good. He was not a short story writer, uh, at least at, not at that time anyway. He got much, much better as time went along. Um, but these short, the short stories, Twilight Zone short stories, some of them are very good, some of them aren't. And uh, he said, he said, I sweated blood on those short stories. He, he was, it was, hard, it was hard. It was the first time he'd written short stories since college, so he was, he was not, he was not in his, in his element, you know. But, uh, but he got through it, and then that's that short story is pretty good. Um, so, going back before the Twilight Zone, I'm just trying to take a jump back again. As I mentioned, Requiem for a Heavyweight. Requiem for a Heavyweight was Rod Serling's, Rod Serling's masterpiece. That that was, it was his own personal favorite of his work. And it was the story that really, it, it meant so much to Serling, professionally and personally. If you know anything, I'll tell you just a little bit about Rod Serling's career trajectory. Uh, you know, Rod Serling was a working writer through the 50s. From 1950, he sold his first script to a national television series in 1950. And between 1950 and 1954, he was incredibly prolific. He wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote. Rod Serling was a workaholic and he just constantly wrote, and he was able to sell, with the, with the help of a, a very good agent, uh, Blanche Gaines, he was able to sell a lot of stuff to pretty much every television series that was on the air at the time. Uh, Stars of Hollywood, Craft Theater, Studio One, uh, Matinee Theater, uh, General Electric Theater, all, you know, any, any theater that was on the air at the time, pretty much, Rod Serling sold something to it. And, but he hadn't really written anything that was you know, really, really outstanding. He wrote some good stuff. Uh, don't get me wrong, but he hadn't written anything that really knocked anybody out until January of 1955 when a show called Patterns came on. And Patterns was a show on the craft theater that Rod Sterling wrote that turned the whole television industry on its, on its ear. Um, this was, an, and, it's, and you know, whenever I talk about Patterns, I, I always preface this by saying I'm not exaggerating, this isn't hyperbole, because it sounds like it, it really, it really does sound like it, but... The next day after Patterns aired, I mean, the New York Times said it was the best thing they'd ever seen on television. From a standpoint of directing, writing, production, it was the best thing that had ever been, the best dramatic presentation in the history of television. Now, the history of television, of course, was about five years old, you know, but, but, but still, um, it was phenomenally well-reviewed to the point where it was even repeated three, month, three months later. It was a live performance, and they got the same cast back together again to repeat it, to do it again, because, due to popular demand. It was the first time any show had had that happen, where people, you know, was that hungry to see it again. Um, and um, so, the, where I'm getting at with Requiem for Heavyweight was after Patterns, for about a year or almost two years, Rod Serling, who was incredibly hard on himself, 
he was trying over and over again to, bet, to better patterns, to best patterns. He wanted something that was going to hit the critics even, even harder than patterns did. And he kept, as far as he was concerned, kept failing. He wrote a lot of really good stuff after patterns that he didn't give himself nearly enough credit for. But, um, but nothing really knocked the critics out until Requiem for Heavyweight uh, with Jack Palance. And Requiem for Heavyweight was an, the first 90-minute original television production. Uh, first 90-minute original television on Playhouse 90. It was the second episode of Playhouse 90. The first episode, Brad Serling also wrote, uh, called Forbidden Area, but that was uh, based on a, on a novel, a science fiction novel, actually. Um, so that was an adaptation. So this is the first original 90-minute television production. And if anything, this was better reviewed than Patterns was. Um, this pretty much swept the Emmy Awards the next year, but won for Best Director, Best Writer, Best, Best Actor, Jack Palance. Um, and, and now Rod Sterling felt finally that he was vindicated, that he was validated, that Patterns wasn't a fluke, and now I've, I've really arrived. You know, so, so Requiem, as I said, it was, was really was Rod Sterling's favorite uh, among, his, among his shows, because again, now you're talking about the quintessential... Rod Sterling, obsolete man. Mountain McClintock, who has been a good heavyweight fighter. He's worked, worked his whole life for this. He got as high as number five in the heavyweight rankings, and now he's just done. He's, he's, too, he's too old. He has an eye injury. He can't box anymore. What do I do? And that's what this story is about. It's about him trying to find some purpose in his life after his boxing career is done. Um, so this aired on, uh, on Playhouse 90, and... When it aired in the, on, the B, in the, on the BBC, they produced it on the BBC uh, about a year later. They were going to get Jack Palance to redo, recreate his role, and he couldn't do it. So they got this young Scottish actor on the left there. Do you recognize him? Okay. <laughs> I wasn't sure how much he really looks like him, but yeah, Sean Connery, one of his very first roles was playing Mountain McClintock in the BBS, uh, BBC production of uh, Requiem for Heavyweight. Unfortunately, no video, no film of this performance exists, but the audio exists, believe it or not. Um, the uh, British Film Institute has the audio of this uh, performance. So, uh, yeah, and then, you know, it went on to be a feature film with, as somebody said, as Gary said, uh, Anthony Quinn, and it was released as Blood Money in, uh, in England. Yeah, England... And this is one of those, if you look on IMDb, I think IMDb still has this wrong. People actually email me every now and then. They say, what's Blood Money? It says it's a TV production. It's not. It's, it's, the, it's the British title of Brooklyn for Heavyweight. And Rod Sterling uh, preferred the television version. I do, too. I like, the, I like the feature film, but I prefer the television version primarily because of Jack Palance. I think Jack Palance is much better at this role, in this role anyway, uh, than Anthony Quinn. Although I do love Jackie Gleason, of course, who doesn't. Um, but yeah, I would definitely prefer the uh, the television version. Uh, just checking my notes. Yeah, I'm not checking my taxes. I actually have notes here. <laughs> um, yeah. So so even after the f- feature film version, which was 1962, so that was seven years after uh, six six or seven years after the after the television production. Um, Rod Serling, he was still wasn't done with it. He always he always envisioned Requiem as a Broadway play. He wrote it as a play, I mean, and it was a play. The Playhouse 90 version is a play. I mean, all the Playhouse 90s were really, to, to some extent, plays. Uh, but So he always envisioned it as a play. And if Rod Serling had one un, 
unrealized dream it was to be a, a Broadway playwright. That's that was that was his 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 big dream, and he wasn't able to accomplish it during his life. But he was able to get it posthumously. And Requiem for Everybody actually did make it to Broadway. You may have blinked and missed it because it lasted less than a week. But it starred John Lithgow as Mountain McClintock. And it did. It opened and closed in less than a week. It got terrible reviews, but John Lithgow got great reviews. He actually got a Tony nomination out of it, which I think is pretty amazing for a show that opened and closed in less than a week. I mean, I'm not a, I'm not a Broadway expert, but I, I would think that's pretty unusual to be nominated for something that lasted like four performances. Again, he made it. He would, Rod would have uh, would have been very proud that it finally made its made its way to Broadway. Uh, and getting back to so boxing, 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 boxing. Getting back to the Twilight Zone. His probably his most famous boxing story on the Twilight Zone was this one called "The Big Tall Wish," which was about a boxer named Bully Jackson, as you can see there on the right, and this little boy who worships him. And the little boy convinces Bully Jackson that if he wishes, that he has a power, that if he wishes for something, if he makes a big, tall wish, that it'll come true, whatever it may be. I, if I could wish for it, it'll, it'll come true. And he wishes for Bully Jackson to win the fight that night. So they, they film the, you know, they, they, he, uh, the fight that night. He, um, Bully Jackson seems to be losing the fight. He gets knocked down and knocked out. And the next thing you know, he's the one standing and raising his arms, and his, his opponent has been knocked out. And he comes back, and the little boy tells him, I told you, I, I, I did it. I, I, I wished for it to, to happen. And Bully refuses to believe that the kid had anything to do with it. He, he says, there's no, there's, there is no magic. I won the fight. It was all me. Uh, you know, that's impossible. And so what happens? He couldn't believe in the magic, so... It goes back, and then you find bullies on the bullies on the on the mat, and his opponent is one. And he learns the lesson that sometimes you have to believe in the magic. You have to you have to believe for it for it to really for it to happen. You have to believe. It's a good story. It's a it's a good it's a good episode. You know the kid is very good. Uh, Ivan Dixon was the was the boxer. Ivan Dixon, uh, I think he was later in Hogan's Heroes, right? A show that Rod Serling loathed. By the and way, and he eventually went on to direct. Yeah, yeah. Um, and a little trivia note, Ivan Dixon's son was in a show that Rod Sterling wrote called The Storm in Summer in 1970. One of the only things he ever did, his son ever did, and he's terrific in it, and it's one of Rod Sterling's best shows. Um, but, uh, yeah, so, so Twilight Zone had you know, a few more sports stories, but um, Rod didn't write them. There, I mean, there's another boxing story that's maybe even more famous than this one called Steel, which was written by Richard Matheson about robot boxers, uh, starring Lee Marvin, mm-hmm. and it was it ended up being the inspiration for a Hugh Jackman movie called Real Steel. Um, one of my favorite episodes, A Game of Pool, was written by George Clayton Johnson, uh, Jack Klugman, and Jonathan Winters, uh, about a guy who plays pool against the ghost uh, and uh, and wins, but he wins a little more than he bargained for. And uh, that's a, a great episode. Uh, Rod didn't write those. Um, there's some other. There are a couple of other uh, baseball references in the Twilight Zone. That again, you know, baseball. I, I love watching. You know, there's an episode of Playhouse Night. Actually, Forbidden Area. I mentioned earlier. Forbidden Area uh, begins with a guy. It's about uh, it's about a spy, a Russian spies infiltrating the U.S. military, 
and they're beginning, they're trying to train this guy to be a real American. So what do they do? They give him baseball quizzes. So he starts, he has to ask these questions about baseball, you know, about, uh, and, and about the Cincinnati Reds, I mean, the Cincinnati connection there, and he's answering these questions about, about the Reds. It's a really cool scene, actually. Um, and in the Twilight Zone, you have things like that. There's an episode called On Thursday We Leave for Home, uh, one of the hour-long episodes where um, the, there's a line that says uh, they're playing, they're playing cat, they're playing baseball actually before they go back to Earth. They're on an asteroid, they're on another planet. They come back to Earth, and um, the other one of the astronauts says that's the universal language, baseball. Yeah. Um, and probably my favorite Twilight Zone episode, Walking Distance, uh, about a guy who goes back in time to his childhood, and you know to revisit his childhood. There's a scene where you know when he first goes back to his his childhood home, what does he see? The first thing he sees on the ground, he kicks, he kicks his old baseball glove. And he picks it up and he says, you know, I remember when my dad bought me this with the, the baseball sign by Lou Gehrig. You know, it's, it's that, that was the tie to his childhood, was baseball. You know, so I like seeing that stuff. Just It reminds me of how, how ingrained baseball was in the culture, in the, in the country. It really was, you know, the national pastime. So that was basically uh, the sports stories. And again, Rod, so Rod Serling did publish them. The Mighty Casey was published in, in short story form. Um, of course, Steel, you know, uh, the, Rod, the Richard Matheson uh, story, that's, that's in his collections. Uh, Game of Pool is in the George Clayton Johnson collection. Um, so they are available uh, in, in prose form, if you're interested. So, any questions? Would you consider Kick the Can? A <laughs> I, was, I, I was thinking of that. I was trying to go, yeah, so yeah kick the can. Sure. Yeah, that's a George Clayton Johnson story. Yeah, kick the can. Uh, that was remade in the Twilight Zone movie. And uh, yeah, I don't think I would consider that a sport, though. Nah. <laughs> Although in the movie version, they do mention boxing, though. If you, do, you remember the, do you remember the movie version? And it says, uh, Joe, um, is Joe Lewis? I was married to Joe Lewis, not the boxer. No, not the boxer. The, little, the old ladies. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> um, yeah, close though. Close. All right. Well, thank you. Thanks for hanging out. You've been listening to a Pulp Event podcast brought to you by the Pulp Net, your link to the online world of the Pulp magazines for over 25 years. Learn more about the Pulp magazines through articles, blogs, bibliographies, links over 100 episodes of this podcast, and much more, at thepulp.net. Also, look for The Pulp Net on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you for listening, and keep reading the pulps. This Pulp Event Podcast is copyright 2023 by William P. Lampkin. All rights reserved.